Hello everyone, welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Philip Moss. Philip is currently a research associate at the Institute for Indology and Central Asian Studies at the University of Leipzig, and was previously an assistant professor at the Department of South Asian, Tibetan, and Buddhist Studies at the University of Vienna in Austria. He received his MA and doctorate degrees from the University of Bonn, Germany, where he studied Indology, Comparative Religious Studies, Tibetology, and Philosophy. His first book is the first critical edition of the first chapter, the Samadhipada, of the Patanjala Yogashastra, i.e. the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, together with the commentary called Yoga Bhashya. He published Inter Alia on classical yoga philosophy and meditation, as well as on the textual tradition of the Patanjala Yoga Shastra. For the last couple of years, he worked in several research projects directed by Professor Karin Preisendantz at the Austrian Academy of Sciences and at the University of Vienna in Austria that aim at a critical edition of the third book of the oldest class classical text corpus of Ayurveda, the Charaka Samhita. Since 2009, he is a member of the Historical Sourcebooks on Classical Indian Thought Project, convened by Professor Sheldon Pollock, to which he contributes with a monograph on the development of yoga-related ideas in pre-modern South Asian intellectual history. So with that, please help me welcome Philip Moss. Philip, so I wanted to ask you a uh, a, a sort of very sort of basic question, I suppose, which is, you know, what is Indology for those that are not familiar with this term Indology? Indology um, is uh, the study of um, culture and religion, philosophy of uh, South Asia uh, throughout um, the history. From, from the earliest times up uh, to present day, up to the present day, more, more or less. And uh, yeah, South Asia is a, a geographical area which is uh, yeah, a little broader than um, modern day political India. It uh, also encompasses the region of modern day Pakistan, parts of uh, Afghanistan, uh, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, um, and um, yeah, and, and so on. And uh, in the historical terms, um, it starts uh, at the times uh, of uh, approximately 1500 BC, from where we have the oldest uh, uh, recorded sources, right. Vedic literature, and it continues more or less uh, to, to modern times, to uh, literature in modern Indian languages. So from this definition, you already uh, see that uh, not a single person on this planet is able uh, to really uh, know everything uh, or have a solid knowledge of all aspects of ontology. So uh, for me, um, uh, the main emphasis is uh, on classical Indian literature, on literature in Sanskrit uh, composed yeah, from the earliest times uh, yeah, until uh, maybe late medieval times that is maybe Fifteenth century in, in pre-modernity. I have not worked uh, a lot on uh, modern Indian uh, literature. Great. Mm. So, in your um, in one of the articles that I read in preparation for this interview, which you had shared with me, a concise historiography of classical yoga philosophy, um, you go through you know this uh, the history of scholarship on uh, classical yoga. But I was just curious about you know again a more basic question. I was curious about this word historiography and how this differs from just saying a history of classical yoga philosophy. What, is it, what, is it, uh, what are the stakes behind using this term historiography? 
Yeah, a history of uh, yoga philosophy would uh, focus on um, actual developments in yoga philosophy. Yeah, um, yoga philosophy as a, a certain trend of philosophy and how this developed over time. Uh, historiography um, is an academic discipline which deals not uh, with um, um, the, uh, um, the the subject which is addressed, but on the history of this subject. So I'm uh, researching in this uh, in this article uh, the history of what of research on on yoga. Yeah. Mm. So it's almost like a meta analysis. It's a meta analysis of the uh, uh, historiographical writing on uh, on yoga. Yes. I see. Okay. And um, <clears throat> so in in this text, you you come you, you speak on you know uh, particularly how. Uh, the role of British colonization and and what it played in in our understanding of yoga's history and and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. I mean, obviously, this is a huge question, and um, and there are many ways you could approach it. But um, from your point of view, you know, what are the kind of key um, points that we should learn from this role that uh, colonization, British colonization, played on our understanding of yoga's history? Yeah, yoga was not uh, viewed uh, very favorably by early uh, Indologists and also uh, by the colonial powers. That had something to do with that the actual yogis uh, that uh, lived um, um, in uh, yeah, 18th, uh, 19th century uh, India uh, were um, yeah, quite uh, far away from the from the ideals of living that uh, Victorian uh, British society had. Um, they uh, uh, didn't have, um, um, yeah, they didn't lead a family life, they had uh, um, given up their uh, social obligations. And some of these uh, yogis, they were also joined in armed forces that had a quite a revolutionary uh, potential, which were right. against the government of the British and that uh, uh, contributed to the fact that, uh, that there was a low estimation of, uh, of yogic practice and the yoga way of living during that time. Mm. Mm. So, so what, the, the, the yogis were not particularly um, uh, esteemed by the, the colonizers, but were they very esteemed even in the, the culture of India at the time? I mean, what was their what was the relationship of the yogis to the mainstream culture? Mm. From a theoretically from a theoretical point of view, um, the uh, aiming at spiritual spiritual liberation is uh, one of the aims that uh, um, uh, are to be followed according to uh, classical Indian literature. So yeah. there are four values that a human beings should pursue. One is uh, dharma, that is uh, uh, following social and uh, juridical obligations and also ritual obligations. The second one is artha, that is uh, um, a meaningful um, action, also the uh, acquiring wealth. Then karma, which means uh, enjoyment, also sexual enjoyments. And then as the fourth um, uh, goal to be pursued, uh, spiritual uh, liberation. So right. there was definitely uh, acceptance in uh, the classical uh, Indian uh, societies for pursuing uh, spiritual uh, liberation. But from an early time onwards, um, yeah, uh, the, the way 
um, of living as a homeless uh, beggar in order to pursue this uh, spiritual aim was accepted. And uh, at the time of the early um, juridical literature, it's a so-called Dharma Shastra, this way of living was integrated into um, a scheme of uh, different uh, periods uh, of life that members of the first uh, three uh, classes of society uh, should follow. That is uh, starting one's life as a Brahmacharin, that is as a Veda student, then a second uh, period of life uh, where uh, in which one should uh, marry, have a family, then um, that, that is uh, the, the period of a Grihasta, then afterwards um, a fourth, uh, third period uh, follows in which one gives up uh, living as, um, um, as, as a house father and uh, uh, in the end then uh, as a sannyasin uh, one even gives up one's uh, uh, home in the forest and wanders uh, as a homeless beggar. So right. there, there was acceptance for this uh, way of living in, in the traditional uh, Indian societies, I would say. Yeah, yes. So um, uh, to move on to, you know, something that you've done a considerable amount of work on, the Patanjali Yoga Shastra, the, now, the, the, the way that this is typically um, understood, at least in you know, the context of yoga teacher trainees, communities who talk about, um, uh, who uh, you know, uh, study the Yoga Sutra, it's often posited that the sutras were by this guy named Patanjali, and then, and then the, the Bhashya, or the commentary, was written by an individual named Vyas. And, 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 and so one of the fundamental contributions that you've made is really to challenge this, you know, you know, seeming orthodoxy about the authorship of the Yoga Sutra, and and um, and and your point being that that the authorship is is really uh, there is evidence to support the idea that authorship is is more singular that um, the Patanjali wrote both. So can you kind of lay that out for us and talk to us about? Um, you know, if it is one author, why it would be separated into two different parts in this way that would suggest um, uh, uh, that it was by two different authors? Yes, uh, maybe a few uh, introductory sentences uh, on, on this, on answering this question. When, when we are dealing uh, with the past in historical uh, academic endeavors, uh, we are always uh, dealing with imperfect evidence. Yeah, so right. it's about uh, something being true or wrong, black or white, but uh, we have um, a certain uh, amount of evidence and we try to reconstruct a certain picture of it and we have maybe also other kinds of evidence and in the end we have to weigh this evidence in order to develop hypotheses. Mm -hmm. And these hypotheses uh, should always uh, be uh, open for revision. So if new right. evidence comes in, the picture may change. So right. I uh, consider myself as a part of this uh, academic uh, process. So uh, I, I don't have any spiritual authority to talk about this matter, but I'm uh, talking on uh, the basis of uh, evidence that right. uh, I, can, I can find. So maybe for uh, our listeners, it may be unusual uh, to ask uh, another very basic question, namely, uh, from where do we know uh, what the Yoga Sutra is actually? Yeah. So. Um, how can we know? I mean, the easiest approach would be to go to a shelf and uh, take a book out and uh, look uh, what is there. Uh, but then the question arises, where, where does the, this book uh, come from? Yeah? Uh, who uh, was the person uh, to write this book? Uh, yeah? We may have an introduction, uh, which tells us that it's a very ancient text, but 
yeah, where does the editor of the Yoga Sutras um, know what the Yoga Sutras uh, are um, actually look like? So if we uh, um, think through that, we um, necessarily come to the idea that uh, a person um, based a uh, um, first printed edition on um, manuscript evidence. Mm. So uh, written texts um, that uh, contain the Yoga Sutra in a certain format, either on palm leaf or on paper, that somebody had been written, I mean, writing down. The question then is, where did this person uh, get um, the scribe of this manuscript, get the information um, to, to write the Yoga Sutra? And then one realizes that uh, manuscripts in India actually don't survive uh, for a very long time. <laughs> have now are copies of copies of copies uh, that go back uh, a, a long way. Hmm. So we have to take uh, the manuscript evidence uh, very seriously when we come to uh, um, asking this question, uh, what does a text look like and uh, yeah, who was the author of the text. One source of information that we, uh, these manuscripts uh, contain are uh, manuscripts so-called colophones. These are uh, informations at the end of the individual's chapters where uh, something is said about the work. For example, the name of an author is uh, recorded there and also the, uh, the title uh, of, the, of the chapter. And if you look into uh, uh, the uh, manuscripts of the uh, Patanjali Yoga Shastra, that is uh, the Yoga Sutra together with the Yoga Bhashya, we see that the Yoga Sutra is not actually uh, separated in these manuscripts uh, from the Bhashya text. Um, except in very, very recent paper manuscripts where we have enumeration and each and every of the sutras is uh, nicely uh, enumerated. Mm -hmm. But in our uh, older manuscripts, they do not contain uh, any separation between sutra and Bhashya text uh, at all, but they, they contain as well as the, the other manuscripts as well, this uh, chapter colophones about uh, which I have uh, been, been talking. And these chapter colophones clearly tell us that we have uh, a work in front of us with the title Patanjala Yoga Shastra, Sankhya Pravachana, and uh, Sankhya Pravachana means magisterial uh, teaching of Sankhya. Mm. So, uh, there's only one author name, namely Patanjali. Nothing is said about Vyasa or uh, Veda Vyasa, only very, very recent paper manuscripts. Um, contain uh, information that this um, uh, text uh, would have been uh, um, a Bhashya written by Vyasa. So then the question arises, where does this information come from with uh, Vyasa? Yeah? Mm -hmm. Read this in our handbooks uh, of um, yeah, Indian philosophy. And uh, if one goes to the sources, one sees that um, mm, only comparatively late sources actually introduce the name of Vyasa. Yeah, we have mm. the Sarvatashana Sangraha uh, by Vidyaranya uh, from the 14th century, and that uh, is the first um, source that I, I know that says very clearly we have the Yoga Sutra on which uh, an author uh, called uh, Vyasa commented upon. Then uh, if we go uh, through um, yeah, different philosophical texts. We, we found quotations from the Patanjala Yoga Shastra in, in this uh, text. Sometimes we find extracts from the Bhashya, which, uh, to which the author says, um, Iti Patanjali. So he says that the quote that he quotes was authored by Patanjali. Uh, and these um, um, instances, these quotes are comparatively early from the uh, yeah, 9th or 10th century. 
And uh, these are much earlier sources than the Savadashana Sangraha, which is 400 years later, in which we read that there is a separate authorship. Then there are uh, further arguments. One of the arguments uh, concerns uh, the, um, the earliest quotation that we have from the Patanjali Yoga Shastra. And these are not, as one might think, uh, the Yoga Sutras, yeah, which mm -hmm. are very famous uh, texts uh, and, and uh, very old, but what we see, um, uh, what we find are quotations from the Bhashya. Quotations already originally in, uh, um, already in the Nyaya Bhashya, which is from the 5th century, and also in the ancient Vritti of Bhattrahari's Vakyapadiya, a work on uh, philosophy of language, which may be from the 6th century, there we also find quotations from the Bhashya part of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra. Then uh, another additional piece of evidence comes uh, from the reception of the work in a poetical uh, literature. We have a highly esteemed uh, poem, uh, Mahakavya, uh, by um, a poet called Maga. And he refers repeatedly, um, without uh, naming uh, any author, to the Patandra Yoga Shastra as a unified whole. Yeah, mm. so, uh, he more or less quotes uh, Patanjali um, yeah, when it comes to yogic meditations at, uh, at a certain sacred mountain. And um, um, the piece of text that he draws upon from his quote really combines the sutra together with the Bhashya. So already at the time uh, of the, uh, in the middle of the 8th century maybe, um, this work was seen as a unified whole and was used by a poet uh, in order to uh, um, use it for, for his poetry. And yeah, the most important uh, argument in my view is that we have uh, at least one instance in the Patanjali Yoga Shastra itself where we have a pronoun, um, a pronoun that refers to something that has been uh, said before. And um, the sutra text itself does not have any reference for this pronoun. This pronoun in the sutra refers to a passage from the Bhashya. And this clearly um, uh, indicates for me that there was an individual uh, author who uh, um, saw sutra and Bhashya as a unified whole and not uh, that there was um, um, a sutra text that uh, had existed independently for a long time, and then uh, one of uh, a commentator at a later time wrote um, um, a commentary on it. There are other indications within the Patanjali Yoga Shastra itself. So the Bhashya part, for example, does nowhere um, um, discuss any um, uh, alternative explanations of the Sutra text. So apparently there was no earlier uh, commentary tradition on, on the Yoga Sutra. It also does not discuss any variant readings, yeah, that the sutra text was uh, read like this or that. No, um, it uh, um, yeah, appears as a, as a unified whole. Then, of course, the sutra text is very much embedded uh, in, in, the, in the work. The sentences um, do not make any sense anymore uh, if you withdraw uh, the sutra from it. And yeah, some uh, modern um, researchers have argued that um, the author of the Bhashya wanted to appear um, the sutra to be an integral part of his work so that he was kind of misleading his reader. But as I see no evidence uh, for uh, the fact that the sutra ever existed at an early time uh, for itself, I rather would say, uh, yeah, the, the face value uh, of this, uh, um, of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra has to be taken seriously. And this is uh, yeah, the conclusion I arrived at after waiting uh, uh, the um, 
the evidence. And I'm pretty much open to revise my position if uh, somebody would come up uh, with a serious decision, uh, discussion of my hypothesis and would uh, bring uh, to my knowledge uh, alternative evidence, which would justify um, to uh, change my view on this question. Well, it's uh, it's nice to hear that you remain flexible in in uh, uh, in the face of possible evidence. But it sounds pretty convincing what you're saying. Um, I guess my you know the, still the question that I have is, and um, you know I understand like we we have all of this evidence to support that they were never perhaps separated, but why then the apparent separation? I mean, what's the utility of 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 having a kind of cryptic thing, you know, piece of the text like the sutra, and then the bashiya separate. Is it was it in service of some kind of um, uh, uh, memorization practice, or you know, are there other reasons for this, uh, according to you know what your conjecture would be? Yeah. So first of all, I would say that uh, what we nowadays find in the uh, editions uh, of the Yoga Sutra as the text of the Yoga Sutra is maybe not actually the Yoga Sutra um, as it was meant to be read. Yeah? Nobody yeah. ever uh, prepared a complete critical edition of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra and tried to uh, separate uh, the Sutra from the Bhashya. I think uh, one could maybe come to uh, different conclusions and one sees also in, in different um, uh, editions that there is a slight variation some uh, editions take uh, the one or other sentence from the Bhashya uh, as being a sutra, yeah, and other editors uh, thought, no, that this is not a sutra part, uh, this is part of the Bhashya. So um, this is still uh, something we, we actually don't know. Um, because uh, very few of the sutras are actually uh, introduced as being sutras. Um, at, uh, I think there are a couple of uh, um, instances where the author of the Bhashya says, so for this and that reason, there is the following sutra. Yeah, uh, that, mm. that happened and then we re read the Yoga Sutra. There are also instances where um, the, at least one where the author of the, um, uh, of the, yeah, of the Bhashya part says, and there is a sutra and he, he quotes a sutra, uh, which actually is not seen as a Yoga Sutra, but a sutra from, from a different work, uh, mm. actually uh, do not know. So the question how to separate the sutra from the Basha uh, is a, a difficult one. But obviously, um, um, Patanjali followed um, a certain, I say, should I say, model of how philosophical texts are, uh, are written at his time. And uh, it's, it's very usual to have sutra text and then uh, to um, um, comment upon the sutra text uh, in, in a commentary. Uh, one argument that I did not mention when we were talking about Sutra and Bhasha is that uh, the word Bhasha does not occur a single time in the Patanjali Yoga Shastra. Yeah? Mm. So this is uh, a designation that was given for this commentary uh, by, uh, by, by later authors, um, maybe not as a title, but as a kind of a description of the functioning of this text. So that this is a Bhasha yeah, on, on a Sutra. Yeah? So Sutra and Bhasha are not uh, necessarily uh, titles for works, but there are designations uh, of different uh, types of uh, literature. I see. Okay. Uh, one uh, another possibility would be that um, in creating the Patanjali Yoga Shastra, the author uh, wanted uh, to create an authoritative book, an authoritative work, uh, and in doing so, 
he wanted to create the idea that he was uh, drawing upon uh, ancient ideas. And uh, therefore he was using uh, earlier sources, which he was quoting as his sutras, and then he was giving, given the in, uh, information and the explanation of this brief and cryptic uh, phrases that he thought would contribute to building up this system of thought that he had uh, in mind to build. Mm. Mm. So then, you know, you mentioned that that at a certain date we start to see Vyasa, you know, more recent, uh, these are more, re at a more recent date, we start to see Vyasa attributed to the Bhashya. Um, why do you think that crept in? Do you think it crept in from a, uh, from a confusion about the Sutra and the Bhashya actually being separate texts and so someone wanted to attribute it to Vyasa? And I know, you know, we have this history of Vyasa being almost a mythological author with the, uh, with the Mahabharata um, and, and, and other texts. So is, is it, um, yeah, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you think that start, that became sort of interjected uh, yeah, into, yeah. into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, of course, I can only uh, answer uh, in a hypothetical manner. I right. don't know yeah. uh, right. what, what happened. And um, yeah, different uh, uh, factors may have contributed uh, to this. The first thing may be um, that um, uh, a certain convention had established itself that philosophical uh, systems uh, consist of a basic text and then a commentary on this text. Like we have, for example, in the tradition of Nyaya, we have the Nyaya Sutra as a base text and then we have the Nyaya Bhashya as a commentary. Uh, and yeah, we have uh, many, many philosophical texts uh, with a base text and then with, with a commentary. But of course, we have also um, um, examples for the opposite, where uh, one individual author uh, created a base text and then a commentary. But I think the uh, first uh, discussed um, uh, case is more frequent. And therefore, uh, one may have asked oneself, so who was uh, the founder of the yoga system and who was uh, the person who uh, um, then uh, wrote uh, the first commentary? And then there was the idea that this uh, should be uh, kept uh, separately. And as you mentioned yourself, uh, Vyasa is um, not necessarily the name of a person. It can also be a designation for, for somebody, for a function in a literary process. Yeah. Uh, it may also mean something like compiler. Yeah? So oh. we all know that uh, uh, a lot uh, of the, uh, the Puranas uh, are attributed to an author called Vyasa. We know that uh, mythologically, um, uh, the name of Yasa is associated uh, with uh, the process of separating for individual uh, a unified set of Vedic teachings into four separate uh, collections or sanitas. And it's clear that this is all mythologic, uh, mythology because um, these texts were uh, composed at very, very uh, different uh, dates in, in Indian uh, literary history. And no person, no single person could have lived long enough uh, to separate the Veda and the, right. the, uh, the Puranas. So, yeah, the question why it was uh, Vyasa and not uh, somebody else uh, is uh, something I, I, uh, I'm still uh, researching. I'm, I'm not sure uh, what this yeah. is. I suppose that um, um, the kingdom of Vijayanagara, uh, 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 which was a, a South Indian uh, um, Hindu uh, kingdom, in, in contrast uh, to North Indian Muslim ki uh, kingdoms, which uh, developed uh, a very strong identity of being uh, um, being Hindu, 
uh, used uh, the Yoga Sutra to, together with the Patanjali Yoga Shastra as a kind of emblem, um, and uh, that uh, the idea that they, they were um, uh, written by two different authors uh, came um, was developed in, in at that time. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I like the way you put it. I've, I haven't heard it put quite that way that Vyasa um, designates a function in a literary process in some instances. And I think that's that's really interesting way to, to, to think about it um, because it also invites in a kind of different, you know, conversation about, you know, what is authorship? Because, you know, oftentimes when we're looking at authorship, we impose our sort of contemporary notion of the author onto these texts and, and, and it's not always, you know, it's, it's sometimes ill-fitting. So uh, I, I like that way of thinking about it, a different kind of function in the literary process that doesn't have to be the traditional kind of authorship. Um, <clears throat> so now, you know, we've sort of been talking a little bit about challenges presented by the composition of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra, one being that, you know, it's not always clear what is a sutra because um, it's not always declared and certainly sutra and bhashya are, um, as you say, you know, not differentiated in, within um, some of the texts, uh, some of the texts that we find. So um, what are some other challenges that are presented by the, the composition of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra? Uh, what do you mean with the challenges? Challenges for whom? For, um, for I, I don't know, scholars or, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking particularly about um, this one author who you mentioned in the, in this historiography text where he, um, it was towards the end of the article, I'm so sorry, I think it was Ob Obenhammer or something similar to this. Uh -huh. Obama, yes. Uh -huh. And he was discuss and and you were discussing how his work um, should have been taken more seriously because he was pointing out um, four essentially four different types of practice that solved some of the problems with um, you know the challenges that are presented by the the the, the Shastra's composition. So that's sort of what I'm thinking about when I'm yeah. when I'm. Uh, does that make sense? Yes, that makes that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, as you uh, say uh, correctly, the Patanjali Yoga Shastra is a challenging text. Yeah, in, in many respects, it's not a straightforward text. It uh, it does not follow the literary conventions that uh, we are used uh, to to see in the texts that have been produced in a Western modern context. It's not a introduction to yoga philosophy uh, for beginners. Yeah, it's it's very. Uh, very difficult uh, to uh, actually um, find out what were the guiding principles of arranging the text in the way that it was arranged. And there, there are some, uh, some basic, uh, there's a basic knowledge uh, uh, systematic behind uh, this. Uh, yeah, we start with a um, general introduction of what yoga is, then um, uh, the functioning of the mind is addressed, what are the, the functions of the mind, um, and then we come to uh, different kinds of, uh, of yogic meditations that are different, differentiated. Uh, and yeah, Obama had a, a quite a clear view on um, yeah, different structures of meditation with uh, different objects of meditation and also with uh, different purposes uh, of meditation. And uh, his uh, differentiation of four different kinds of meditation in the Patanjali Yoga Shastra uh, at least for me, appeared uh, very convincing, and that helped me uh, to make sense out of um, different uh, difficulties 
that the structure of the text uh, poses for me or challenges like like you you put it yeah mm -hmm. okay so then, you know, in the towards the end of this article, you discuss um, kind of the future of uh, research in in yoga philosophy, and and two um, things that you mentioned. I'll just take them in turn. The first one is you mention um, two transmissions of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra, one um, corresponding to the north and one to the south. Can you? I I, I don't think I've really ever heard about this until I read your work, and, and I know this is going to be new for a lot of people. Um, what do we learn about the overall work from the, from the kind of bringing these two transmissions together? Yeah, um, if, if you open a book and you read a printed edition of the, of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra in Sanskrit, you will find that uh, quite a number of passages are very difficult and there are further passages out of which you hardly can make any sense. Mm. And um, this is uh, the reason why uh, most of the translations of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra we have uh, are very unsatisfactory. Um, I think a quite good um, uh, attempt to translate this book uh, uh, was um, done already in 1914 by Woods who um, uh, in the Harvard Oriental series published a publication of the uh, uh, translation of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra together with the Tatvavashadi commentary by Vachaspati Mishra. Um, Woods was a good Sanskritist, but uh, he had the problem that he created a new type of English, a new idiom in order to translate uh, technical terms of yoga. So um, you have the problem that you only can understand his translation if you under uh, understand the Sanskrit text, so that was not uh, a very use, uh, useful approach for, for a general public. Yeah, it's right. not an appealing translation that yet, but it, it, it's a good one. Um, some of the textual problems uh, that uh, one uh, has um, can be solved if you compare different uh, versions of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra. So I was already talking about uh, the fact that we have uh, manuscripts um, that, that transmit uh, the work. And these manuscripts uh, are copies of previous copies, and these copies go back uh, along uh, the lines of history. And uh, if we are talking about manuscript copies, of course, we are talking about copies that have been prepared by human beings. Mm -hmm. That means uh, scribes uh, who copied the text and who changed the text during um, their uh, activity of copying it. Well, it's impossible to copy a longer amount of text without uh, changing it. That's uh, for, for human beings. There are different kinds of changes that may occur either, either uh, involuntarily, you just make a mistake, you misspell something, or you drop a line out. Or, I mean, if you are uh, a part um, of the tradition and you actually follow the text that you are copying, it may occur, and you, and you are aware of the fact that you're also reading a handwritten copy in which uh, there may be already mistakes, you may try to change the text according to your knowledge uh, of the text. So there are also uh, voluntary uh, changes that occur in the, in the course of copying the text. And uh, yeah, of course, this amount of changes uh, during the copying process that accumulates in the course uh, of time. Uh, so that we have uh, as many versions of the text as we have uh, manuscripts in the end. Mm. Slightly different, yeah, you can clearly see that it's uh, the same text, but uh, different versions uh, uh, differing in uh, uh, yeah, hundreds and thousands of uh, 
respects. Yeah, individual words uh, uh, there are lacking uh, synonyms um, uh, occurring at the uh, same um, at the same spot, different in, differences in syntax, and so on. This uh, process of transmission can of um, can be used um, on, on on the background uh, of a philological method to reconstruct earlier versions of the text, because um, yeah, uh, a change that once um, has occurred in the process of of copying a text remains within um, in the text because uh, the copyist of the previous copy will recopy um, the change that had been introduced at an earlier instance. Right. And, um, in the end, uh, in the case of the Patanjali Yoga Shastra, one can see that one uh, can clearly differentiate two versions. One version that we find in North Indian paper manuscripts, and these were the versions that were used to prepare the print editions that we uh, know nowadays. And there are uh, quite a, a lot of um, manuscripts from the South that uh, um, um, transmit a different version. And I would say that on every page, uh, you usually find, I would say, five or six instances where the text differs seriously not only with regard whether you have a conjunct uh, more or whether a conjunct is a disjunct, but uh, really uh, serious textual differences. And uh, this makes it highly important actually to take into account all the evidence of the manuscript we have and to prepare a real scholarly critical edition of the Patandra Yoga Shastra, which also will then contribute to solving the question that we discussed further uh, before uh, what part of this work is a sutra, what part is a varsha, um, and so on. Mm. So that's also something that people don't realize. The study of these texts are very much in their infancy. Uh, we are in a completely different situation than we are for texts that come from the, from the, from the Greek uh, uh, um, um, culture or uh, Latin texts, where generations of researchers have looked at all the important manuscripts and prepared real sol solid scholar editions, we don't have something like this for most of the Indian material. Okay, so my next question then is, um, well, I guess it's uh, two parts. One is, um, I understand that, you know, to a philologist, you know, these two transmissions the, and the differences between them may be quite stark, but, you know, for someone who's just trying to extract kind of uh, the general meaning of, of a particular text, it might not seem that glaring. So I'm curious if, um, you know, what, if any, of these differences actually challenge us in terms of the meaning of the text, and if you could touch on that. And then I'm also curious um, if you find what, what you see as being kind of the biggest disjunction between the kind of contemporary transmission of this text or the contemporary understanding of this text compared to what um, you see as being... Um, I don't know if original is the correct term, but uh, but what you find in your own in your own research in terms of the meaning of the text. Yes, um, I don't think um, that uh, this philological work uh, that, that I'm doing only concerns superficial uh, uh, changes uh, of the text. Right. I think uh, that there are many instances. Um, where um, there are really uh, uh, severe uh, differences of the text uh, um, and uh, real severe differences um, between uh, the historical reconstruction and what we find uh, in the Bhagat. It's not just uh, a philologic, uh, philologic, philologic, philologist's uh, pleasure, <laughs> but uh, 
No, it's something that uh, a work that, that needs to be done to say something seriously. Yeah. Because the text is also very, very dense. Yeah. So it's uh, the whole text is uh, composed in what one could uh, say uh, sutra style. That means mm -hmm. uh, each and every word is uh, completely loaded uh, with meaning. Yeah. Uh, very uh, uh, difficult to understand at instances and. Um, uh, yeah, if you if you look at, at it and, and go it and uh, go for it and uh, bring it into relationship to other texts, then uh, here you um, real universes of uh, thought uh, may um, emerge from this. I can a single example, one of my favorite uh, example when it comes to discussing the textual differences. We have in Patanjala Yoga Shastra one twenty nine um, uh, one result of the uh, meditation on Ishvara. Um, and in the Varget um, version, uh, the Sanskrit text reads Svarupa Darshana Asya Bhavati. That means um, the yogi acquires the sword, uh, the, um, the, the sight of Svarupa, uh, of his own form. And one wonders what this should mean. How can can I see uh, my my own form? What is this? Uh, what is this own form? Usually, Svarupa is not something to to look at. Yeah, Svarupa is uh, the, the real essence of something. Mm -hmm. um, so so very uh, uh, puzzling uh, formulation. And if you look into uh, the southern version of of this text, you suddenly see that it's not Svarupa but Svapurusha. That mm. means one's own Purusha. Yeah. So the yogi acquires the sight of his own inner self, yeah, of, of the purusha, of his own, uh, um, of his own uh, souls, so to say, if you want uh, to translate uh, purusha in this way. And this connects very nicely uh, to the idea what the Ishvara is in Patanjala Yoga, namely uh, nothing but uh, a special kind of purusha. So it is uh, a liberated soul, um, so to say, an archetype of a liberated soul. And on meditating on this archetype of a liberated soul, the yogi acquires um, uh, sight, yeah, real, uh, direct perception of his own soul, and that leads him uh, to liberation. And in this way, you can understand what uh, the meditation, uh, uh, Ishvara meditation in the Patanjali Yoga Shastra actually is about, something you could not uh, know if you uh, look at the uh, Basha in its Vagat version. So this is just one example. Um, as you see from the amount of uh, um, information that I have to provide to make this uh, um, understandable for, me, for you, all these examples, of course, uh, require contextualization. And I, I think we, we don't have uh, time here to, to discuss uh, this uh, in more detail. But yeah, this is something that you have to believe me because I, I have been working on this. It's, uh, it's valuable yeah, to do this philological work. And uh, of course, um, academic uh, work uh, yeah, needs a, a certain sequence of, uh, of progress. Now the, the works of Platon, for example, they have been edited to the best of uh, one's capacity. And then philosopher, philosophers uh, start to interpret them, to set them into the relationship to the pre-Socratics and to what came afterwards. And in this way, we have a, a history of uh, Greek's uh, philosophy, mm -hmm. uh, for which the critical edition of the text is one precondition. And yeah. uh, uh, Indian, uh, India is no exception. Yeah? Uh, academic uh, um, enterprise of researching the history of Indian philosophy should uh, basically follow uh, the same method uh, methodology. 
and it's important actually to to have reliable editions of uh, these things. Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely see where you know where that difference can really lead to um, quite radically different conclusions about you know what the goal or the objective is in in terms of that particular practice. So that's interesting. Um, so then, <clears throat> in terms of what, and of course, you know, we could talk about. I, and I don't want to get too far left field uh, of, you know, the ways in which the Yoga Sutras has been appropriated. I mean, I know there's many, many um, uh, problematically, you know, distilled uh, versions of it, you know, particularly in assuming that, you know, that we get, for example, you know, all of our contemporary asanas from this text, which is a very crude misunderstanding. But, um, but maybe the, you know, just a couple thoughts on on um, ways in which you see the the contemporary relationship of, to the Yoga Sutras differing from perhaps what the authorial intention as you understand it might have been. Um, and I'm thinking maybe particularly in, um, in terms of, you know, innovations uh, or um, approaches to the text like Vivekananda's where there was a sense of um, almost saturating it with a Vedantic worldview or attempting to kind of um, uh, integrate Sankhya and Vedanta in some way. Um, so anyway, do you have any thoughts on, on that, the, 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 um, the difference between the authorial intention uh, versus how it's, the text is being um, used today? Yeah, I mean, um, the way, um, I think there's no unified way in which the text is used uh, today. Different authors have yes, uh, right. in different ways. But I think that there is a, a certain tendency that one can see, namely that uh, people use the Yoga Sutra, which is a quite uh, difficult uh, Sanskrit text, uh, um, if it's taken by itself, almost incomprehensible at very, uh, various instances, to use this uh, as a canvas to project uh, their own philosophical uh, ideas uh, on it. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have uh, any problem if uh, philosophers uh, develop uh, their ideas uh, along the lines of, uh, uh, of exemplars that they find in the Indian tradition. Uh, I find this uh, very, very useful to develop new philosophical ideas on the basis of older ideas. But I think one should be uh, honest about uh, one's own project. And one should say, I uh, interpret uh, certain material in a novel way. I am inspired by, by some sources that I find in Sanskrit and I I try to, to change um, uh, uh, their meaning, to adopt it to the needs of modern persons, rather than saying that I have discovered the original meaning that uh, Patanjali uh, uh, had and my right. interpretation of the Yuga Sutra, this is what can, can be found in, in the Sutra. And right. you can miss many of these uh, uh, pseudo-original interpretations of, of, the Patanjali, of the Yuga Sutra if you look into the Basha text. And even if the Basha text was not written or composed by the, by the same person, it, there is no doubt in the scholarly community that it was composed very, very um, close, uh, very close time to the, uh, to the Yoga Sutras. Except if you have uh, some, uh, I, I would say, uh, political motivated uh, authors who want to project the Yoga Sutra far back uh, to the uh, Indus Valley civilization and say that Yoga is timeless, and uh, Patanjali was an ancient rishi. Yeah, um, if you look on the Patan, uh, even on the Yoga Sutra for historical reasons, it's clear that it must have been uh, composed somewhere in the fourth century of the Common Era. It cannot be yeah. older, and the Patanjali Yoga Shastra was also composed uh, during this time. So, in any case, 
um, the, the, the Basha part should be taken seriously when one uh, interprets uh, the Yoga Sutra, if one is inter interested in what the text had to say in its original context. If one does not uh, want to follow this approach, then one should uh, honestly say what one is doing. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so this has been a very interesting talk, and we're getting um, uh, towards the end of our time here. So, uh, Philip, I just wanted to ask if there was anything else um, with in relation to what we've been talking about that you'd want to touch on, or that you'd want the listeners to um, be familiar with. Uh, yeah, you uh, already mentioned that. Um, yeah, some people actually uh, regard the Patanjali Yoga Shastra as the source for uh, actual asana practice that we that we find nowadays. Uh, and I, I think that that this is um, yeah maybe also a little bit a, a distortion of the historical evidence. Uh, asana practice plays a certain role in the Patanjali Yoga Shastra but uh, it's only uh, very briefly mentioned in this text. And um, asana practice uh, is basically uh, assuming a um, firm position for meditation in order um, yeah, to, uh, something that you can maintain for a long time to practice breath control and then later, uh, later meditations and dynamic asanas, for example, like we have in modern yoga practice, uh, where you have a sequence of movements um, uh, is not mentioned in the Patanjali Yoga Shastra at all. Mm. So. And actually, it's good that you mentioned that because um, uh, uh, Philip is going to be participating in our upcoming online conference, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. Um, uh, yoga Reconsidered is our next online conference, and it features Philip as well as nine other um, researchers on the history of yoga, and uh, Philip will be giving a talk on on this very topic, on the topic of asanas um, in the Patanjali Yoga Shastra. So, uh, if you have, if you are listening to this, and it's before the middle of February two thousand eighteen, you can go to um, embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash yoga dash reconsidered embodiedphilosophy.com forward slash yoga dash reconsidered and you'll find information um, on how to sign up for that um, so thank you so much philip it's been such a pleasure chatting with you thank you very much it was my pleasure